Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. On a Hello, right. stormy morning this morning. Um, and a blackout, as I was saying, in the centre of town, there are no traffic lights working. Uh, the lights in Supermax have turned off. They're in blank darkness. So there's a strange air about the town this morning. I don't know what caused oh. it. Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully it'll be all back to normal soon. I bet it will. I was trying to park my car this morning. I couldn't get a ticket out of the car park. I know I should walk in. You're right. I should walk in. But sometimes when it's wet and windy and rainy, I, I drive in. Yeah, I'm feeling yeah. my age on the wet, bad weather. Too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Tom, what have you got for us this week? <laughs> Well, I am talking about horses this week, and in horses. particular horses in Air Square, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I have a couple of photographs of horse fairs in Air Square. Yeah. Right. Uh, but when you think of it, they, the kind of association of the square with horses goes much further back. There used to be jousting in Air Square many years now. It was only just a wide open park in those days. Um, and when the horse fair started, uh, they would have been outside the railings. They were on the street and at the top of the square, just under your window, in fact, right. where you're sitting there. Um, they, they were very important uh, because, <clears throat> you know, before motorized vehicles came along, the horse was vital when Absolutely. we think of it to our yeah. lives. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was the main mode of transport that we had. It pulled <clears throat> carriages and carts, and uh, it was certainly the main workhorse workforce on the farm. Uh, so it was critical there as well. And uh, you know, it could. It also brought, of course, the farmer into the markets on Saturdays to sell his produce and so on. And uh, yeah. It was always very important, and of course, we know about horse racing and how always important that was in the history of this city. Yes. Uh, and the first Galway Horse Show was actually held in the square, in the square, in 1892. So there were these horse fairs that were a very integral part of Galway life. They were a very regular social and economic event, uh, and it was where... Uh, in many cases, people came from east of Galway uh, to buy the product, the horses that were very often bred west of us here. I mean, the Connemara pony is an obvious uh, example of that. But, you know, it was it had a peculiar atmosphere at the horse fair. There were dealers, there were drovers, there were farriers, blacksmiths, saddlers, just horse lovers uh, who felt that at the time, that the horse was not just a disposable war machine. And I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. But 
I have a quotation from the National Geographic that was written over 50 years ago. And it's worth actually reading the Yes, reading the quotation. All around were the buyers, coattails flying, ash sticks waving, hand lashing. What a lovely word, hand lashing. Hand lashing for the bargain. Looking like enemies, but agreeing good naturedly on luck money, which was the part that's given back. Now, I'm doing you a good favor, and you don't have the sense to see it. And it's a, it's a very fair price says the big tall man, while a peaceable little man listened patiently with his hand on his horse. As the big man turned away in disgust, casual observers whispered to him, and he turned back, and then, arm in arm, the two sealed their bargain. (laughs) They'll argue for ten bob, and they'll drink up a pound, said a man at my elbow. <laughs> and I thought that's just a lovely, lovely description yeah. of the whole thing. It is tough. in the 19th yeah. century, especially the um, th- these horse fairs were very important uh, and especially important for the British Army because they regularly bought up most of the best horses on offer. But sadly, these were to be used in various military campaigns like the Crimean War later the Boer War, and, of course, World War One, And, like, <clears throat> their sweep of the equine population, if you like, was such <laughs> at World War One that they took, commandeered most of the horses that the Galway tram way, that, they, that were pulling the Galway tram, and that really put an end to the uh, tram mm-hmm. business. Now, as it happened, the... Motors were coming in anyway. Trucks were beginning to replace horses on the main road for carrying loads, Uh, you know. uh, And indeed, as we get to the farm, back to the farm, the tractor was replacing the horse as well. So horse fairs were becoming less and less frequent. And by the time that our correspondent was quoting in the uh, uh, National Geographic, Horse fairs were almost finished. Uh, there were, of course, a lot of other kinds of fairs and markets held in the square. Yeah. There were cattle Tom, fairs. I don't fairs, remember the horse fairs. fairs. I remember cattle fairs. No, I don't remember the horse fair either. I agree with you. I yeah. think by the time we were getting to be yeah. uh, able to look around us properly, they had more or less gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were... Yeah. And all of these fairs were hugely important, both to the country and the city, because it was where the country came in to meet the city. Yeah. And when, of course, they were paid for their cattle or their sheep or their horses, sure, sure. they then spent a certain amount of the money in the city anyway. Yes. So this, these were hugely economical as well as social events. Yeah. There were, of course, much smaller ones then. There were, you know, there was a hay market or a turf market, uh, and the most awful one of all, I think, and that was just opposite you uh, on the railings, usually in front of the skeff, uh, was the hiring fair, the spalpings lining up yeah. there, yeah. hiring themselves yeah. out I don't to farmers. Yeah. And farmers would come in from East Galway and South yeah. Galway, yeah. and they'd pick these guys. And 
It was they would give them free board, not that it was of the most salubrious type of board, but feed them yes. and pay them a wage at the end of it. They would hire them for a season, four to six weeks usually. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that, that must have been. I have a photograph of a spout being. Do you? There, and yeah. It's just yeah. So so there was no dignity about this. It's kind of a slave market. And of course, then there were other markets. It was exactly what it was. Yeah, exactly. And these were unemployed, hungry, young men who came mostly from the West. Yes. From areas like Rahun, Connemar, obviously. Uh, You know, uh, very sad. But there were also other, I mean, these fairs and markets weren't confined to Gare Square. No, there was a potato market in uh, Wood Key. There was another in the Small Crane. There was a Bonnev market most Saturdays at Queen Street. (laughs) Egg and butter markets, you know, the fish market. Yes, there was a small market for men who made baskets or women who made baskets in Wood Key regularly. Uh, A sock market in Eglinton Street. And, of course, then there was the vegetable market in front of St. Nicholas's Church. So, uh, anyway, that's what I have. Two photographs this week. One is of a kind of a bird's eye view of a horse fair, which shows a packed air square with animals and men and women. Uh, And the other, and also, by the way, it makes you think of the major cleanup the corporation had to do after all these animal fairs in particular, after a pig fair or a cattle fair or a horse fair, uh, the major cleanup that had to be done by the corporation. Yeah, I know. The second image is of two men uh, about to be slapping hands, hand lashing, as this person used the lovely term, and uh, striking a bargain. And uh, But it's a way of life that has completely gone and disappeared. Well, Tom, I must say, I'm thinking of the horse fair that continues, of course, is the Great Ballinus Slow Horse Fair, uh, which is in the last week in September, I think, going into October. And that still has some of the vitality that you're talking about. I haven't been for years now, but I used to go down. I suppose they didn't have it for the last three years, but I used to go down with Willie Fahey. And yeah. Willie was a great man. Willie used to write the American Diary column in the Galway Advertiser. And it, this would be one of his last trips. And everybody loved Willie. They'd say, oh, Willie, Willie, because Willie would mention their name in the column. His column yeah. was famous because all it did, all it contained were a list of names. And that satisfied yeah. everybody. But yeah, there was a great atmosphere in that horse fair a lot of travelers with their horses boys riding bareback up and down to show the worth and stamina of the horse and a lot of serious people buying horses i don't know quite what deals were done but i did read that during the napoleonic wars at the beginning of the 19th century uh Napoleon's horse buyers came to Banlaslow on several occasions and took every horse that was available <laughs> and had them shipped yeah. to France if they could yeah. could avoid the blockade of the British ships. But uh, it's still there. That that atmosphere is still there. But the horses, yeah. you I'm say, sorry. yeah, I think I think Napoleon's horse was actually an Irish horse, if oh. I remember. 
Right. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting. Do you remember its name? Napoleon's horse's name? Marengo. Marengo. I think it was Marengo. Yes, I think it was. Faithful horse. Well remembered. I'd like to think he was an Irish horse. But but other than show jumping and amateur riding, there's not a great future in horses outside racing, is there, Tom? You know, you don't see... I haven't seen the hunt now for a while. I suppose there's been no hunt in County Galway for the last few years as well. You know, I, I... well, it used to start in Air Square outside, just beside you there, where the, uh, the county hunt. club was. The hunt, yeah, yeah, yeah. They used to trot up Bormore and after their hunting grounds right. from there, right? They would have their stirrup cup in yes. Air Square. Very important. But that, that was the gathering place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, lovely. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Gathering place, yeah. I did come across the hunt some years ago down in East Galway, and I stopped my car to see them come up the road. And uh, I can tell you, Tom, they were well turned out. There wasn't a, 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 a runner shoe in sight. There wasn't a Wellington <laughs> boot in sight. There wasn't an old yes. pair of jeans in sight. They were immaculately dressed, all ages, yes. looking su- yes. superb, really, mainly in black, yes. uh, you know, the white jowpers, Boots, God, they look terrific. I must say, I took a romantic turn of phrase and I got out of the car and I watched and, uh, you know, I just was very impressed at the turnout yeah. of the hunt. As a it was a big hunt. There must have been about 40 or 50 riders and they were just yeah. trotting along the road waiting to get going, I presume, you know, with the hounds. Wonderful sight, wonderful sight. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, so, Tom. So... You know, yeah. What, what is in the diary this week? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's a bit mad, really. This week, it's a, honestly, it is a little bit mad. You know, there's a touch of Ludwig II, the King of Bavaria. Ludwig II, poor old Ludwig. He probably went mad listening to Wagner's music, but he built these fantastic fantasy castles, and you know, amazingly, you know, twenty years or fifteen years after the famine. There was some, the greatest fantasy castle of all in Ireland, Kylemore Abbey or Kylemore Castle was built. And it must have been an extraordinary sight, Tom, to see in the yeah. 1860s, this castle rise from a bog in the heart of Connemara's 12 pins, barely a decade following the devastation of the Great Famine. Because more than 100 men were employed, some coming as far away as Renville and further. And they were getting a handsome wage of seven to ten shillings a week, turning rough, soggy land good for, for on, only good for shooting a wildfowl and for fishing in nearby lakes. But they turned that land into a magnificent building. And today it stands more like a palace than a castle, I always think. And it's still it a showstopper, still a showstopper on the Letterfrack Road. Now, surprisingly, it was not the first exotic castle in the area, because 35 years before uh, Kyle Moore, John Darcy, a descendant from the original Anglo-Norman tribes of Galway, sold land he inherited in the east of the county and commenced building his fantasy home overlooking the Atlantic known as Clifton Castle, which may well have been an inspiration for Kyle Moore, actually. Now, today... Mm. 
sadly neglected, <coughs> that sadly neglected Clifton Castle with its gothic arches, its slim round yeah. towers. I saw it some time ago. It stands today at the end of an impressive avenue, flanked by four standing stones. I don't know if they're prehistoric stones or not, but they're very impressive. Its walls are generously castellated. And nearby, this is the interesting thing, are the wrecked remains of a grotto through which a stream flows with the shell house. Uh, or it's kind of a, a, a maritime temple. Now, I got a reference to it, actually. The American Asneth Nicholson. This is a very interesting lady, an American lady from New York who heard stories of the famine from Irish immigrants, came over to Ireland. She was a Bible reading woman and a deeply religious lady. She walked through Connemara in the 1840s and witnessed how many, as you can imagine, the horrors of the Great Famine. Oh, yeah. But she was delighted to come across, and she wrote about it, a fairy castle with variegated pillars, an open door made of shells of the most delicate shades, arranged in stars and circles of beautiful workmanship. It must have been a welcome contrast to the misery she witnessed. But anyway, that's a kind of an, a, a historical reference to Clifton Castle, which sadly today is a ruin. And, you know, it could it easily is, be yeah. put back together again if somebody wanted to. But there you go. It's a ruin today. So Kylemore, Kylemore. Um, the man behind the Kylemore project was, of course, Mitchell Henry, the son of a leading cotton merchant in northern Britain, who abandoned his career as a consulting surgeon at Middlesex Hospital when he inherited his father's fortune. <laughs> Henry had already been a regular visitor to Ireland, where he was an enthusiastic angler, but he married a beautiful woman, Margaret Vaughan of Quilly House, County Down. They honeymooned in Kylemore House Hotel and fished just two miles away from his inescapable fate when he saw the land in front of him. Now, the marriage between yeah. Mitchell... And Margaret was very much a love match. And possibly, as they looked at the valley before them, they agreed to build their dream home there. A man of Henry's wealth and prestige could have had a far easier life as a landed gentleman in, an, in a baronial mansion in, in one of England's pleasant shires. But here, in the wet and misty mountains, was a challenge for his romantic soul. And Henry and his wife, chosen their Jerusalem, elsewhere, then a single hunting lodge in Connemara would have been sufficient. But no, the hunting lodge was in fact already in situ. It was the retreat of robber Wilberforce. Now this is interesting. And uh, the son of the great humanitarian William Wilberforce, who had successfully began the anti-slave trade campaign. Now I never knew the son of Wilberforce was in Connemara before. But to the oh, anguish of his family, Robert, the son of this great man, after years of inner conflict, had followed John Henry Newman, the leader of the so-called Oxford movement, and renounced his Anglican faith for Roman Catholicism, a major incident in the history of the Church of England. I won't go into it. But Robert devoted his time for improving the lot of his poor tenants, providing 30 cottages, and would have undoubtedly done more but for his untimely death, uh, putting up his hunting lodge for sale. So now, Robert's land and others were rolled up into a 15,000-acre estate, uh, 
And by 1866, work on the colossal Kylemore building began with its castellated towers and more than 70 palatial rooms. And to keep out the damp winter air, Tom, a brilliant idea, a Turkish bath was a luxurious extra, big enough for Henry and his guests. I'm advised, however, there was a separate section for the ladies. Roaring turf fires provided the necessary steam to ward off colds and rheumatism. It was like such a thing had never been seen in Connemara before, Tom, and it naturally no. was the talk of the country. But if the house was impressive, so was the domestication of the rough bogland as it was turned into a miracle of horticultural management and self-sufficiency. This is the eight and a half acre walled garden with the geometrical flower beds set in smooth lawns. There were 21 glass houses, including a winery, a fernery, a palm house, a fig house, nectarine house and a banana house all heated oh by a God. boiler set over a lambkin that produced 70 barrels of lime a week. Plus, also within the garden, workshops, a mushroom house, endless storerooms, included a laundry, drying rooms, and the accommodation for dairy staff. Nearby was stabling for 29 horses and a coach house. You talked about horses. <laughs> the fair in Galway, I mean, 29 horses in Kylemore was a fair in itself. <laughs> it was indeed. Tom, there was even a fire station manned by a helmeted crew and tender drawn by two horses as well. But in addition to all of this, a model farm with all the necessary outhouses for animals and storage was there. Even with the turbine to power the circular saw was installed with, detract with attractive designs for ease of management. There were boathouses on the lake and a salmon hatchery. In short, a luxurious fantasy of romantic days of yore, married to modern industry, was carved out in the Connemara bog. Everything had to make way for it. And this is unfortunately an incident that was to haunt Mitchell Henry in years to come. A tenant had to be removed from his little farm where the walled garden was to be sited. He was rehoused elsewhere with compensation. But however, as I said, this would come back to haunt Henry later. But anyway, back to the magic kingdom of the Henrys. They provided employment for hundreds of people. Now, remember, Tom, this is within decades of the Great Famine, when there was nothing, nothing in Connemara. Yeah. There was something in Clifton, the yeah. town was being built, but there was nothing in Connemara. So to have this kind of facility, this opportunity for employment, good employment, was extraordinary and was taken up. Now, there was more than 240 men were employed draining the mountain streams into controlled rivers, while dozens of girls earned ninepence a day harvesting the turnips. Now, Tim Robinson, who I'm taking the story from, wonders if it could be true, as records suggest, that 300,000 trees were planted every year for several years. And some of these trees were exotics to include the rhododendron, which despite its beauty uh, at the early summer is now, of course, run wild in that part of Connemara. But I, I love the rhododendrons, actually, especially in June when they're in bloom. But anyway, people tell me they're a curse and have to be destroyed at some stage. But anyway, 
Back to the thing, winding walks by the lakeside came into existence and a lordly carriage sweep uh, before the arched main entrance with its carving of a winged figure bearing the family coat of arms. This was really an extraordinary thing. I, it would equal Ludwig II of Bavaria's fantasy castles. But however, <laughs> not all were pleased with the enterprise. You'll always get the begrudgery when it comes to the Irish, I'm afraid. It's part of our nature. The Martins of Ross blamed Henry's imported masons, carpenters and, plaster and plasterers for introducing communistic ideas into Connemara. And they were bringing these ideas with them, with their skills from England. There was nothing but communists. But on the other hand, Tom, the Joyces of Ridley Sess founded a much their moderate fortune by selling Pachin to them. That's the only thing they could get. And the Joyces of Recess were known to make the best Pachin in Connemara. Anyway, after the annual staff balls at the castle, 200 tenants and workmen and their families would disperse with three cheers for Mr. and Mrs. Henry. And we can hear those cheers today from a very grateful workforce. Now, Mitchell, however... <laughs> Then a northern Englishman had a practical streak in him as well as his romantic heart. And in 1871, he was elected unopposed for Galway and represented it at Westminster for 14 years. And I'm going to talk about that next week, Tom, a little bit about the landlords again, because he ran straight into the land war and straight into Parnell, yeah, yeah. who we did not get on with. So I think there's oh, another story oh. there. <laughs> but so yeah, that's yeah. it. Fantasy. OK, fantasy. wonderful. Anamara. I mean, you know, where would you get it? Where would you get it? Oh, it's a wonderful story. It's a great story. story. It's a great yeah, story. Is, yeah. And an yeah. extraordinary vision that he was driven to, his wife and himself, you know, in, in realizing this dream. I mean, Kyle Moore, it's extraordinary. You stop the car at that little bridge there on your way to. Yeah, it, exactly. And you look across the lake. And do you know why it glistens, Tom? Wait till I tell you this now. I haven't written about this, but I know this for a fact. It, it, Ruinous expense. He took Dorky granite. He took granite from Dorky. And Dorky granite is famous because it's sparkly. There's some kind of some kind of sparkling element within. I'm sure somebody would yeah. tell me what it what was. It actually kind of sparkles a little bit, but at enormous cost. He built barges and he brought them around from Dublin all the way around the south of Ireland into Linan, uh, wh where they were taken off and put onto large carts. And that, that granite was put in blocks, if you like, on the front of the castle. And that's why when it rains, even when it rains, God help us, and it rains in Connemara, even when it rains, there's a sparkle. And there's a kind of a light coming from the building. It's extraordinary expense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But he Can was you a... imagine I know. what the locals thought of a man who I would import stone into Connemara? I know. Where there was yeah. all, it was all it was stone. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, those that didn't work for him certainly did. But, yeah. uh, you know, but those that worked for him must have felt he was a manna from heaven, you know. You know, and oh yes, I presume absolutely, and he I was all that staff. They didn't have to emigrate. You know, they were pretty secure. Yeah. 
as long as Kyle Moore was operative and as long as the gardens were working and, you know, things like that were happening. Yeah. The staff was secure and I, that saved them emigrating. Thank goodness for that. So that was something. Yeah. But anyway, Tom, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Okay, Ronnie. With all the horses. Okay. And I'll go galloping off. Yeah, until next week. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. betcha, Tom. Take care. Enjoy the week. Tom. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye.